I'm conductor and creator Timothy Myers, and I can't stop chasing the question, what would the world look like with more listening? This is Listening on Purpose. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. Today's guest is Amy Gallo. Amy Gallo is a contributing editor at Harvard Business Review, where she writes about workplace dynamics, among other things. She's got a great, great new book out called Getting Along, How to Work with Anyone, Even Difficult People. This is a really great conversation. We get deep pretty fast talking about soft skills and their necessity for having empowered relationships and empowered teams. And then we get really heavily into the book and uh, talk about how to have enlivened relationships in the workplace. Now, I just want to have a little caveat here. This sounds like it could be a very business-centric kind of conversation, but I want to assure you that the principles she lays out in the book, the really great practical advice she gives on how to navigate relationships can have a huge impact on your relationships, not just in the workplace, but also in every area of your life. Thanks for being here. Enjoy the conversation. I appreciate you making time in your schedule to do this. And I'm really glad we got to meet and at least spend a few minutes in person. Thank you. And you were so nice <laughs> to come to my talk. Oh, I really, really enjoyed your, your talk. And just to give a little context, you were a featured speaker at South by Southwest a couple of weeks ago. And uh, I think most people know what South by Southwest is, but if they don't, it's a, it's a festival that really, boy, it, it's very diverse now, right? I mean, it's got a huge film component, a huge music component, a huge technology component, thought leadership. You were one of the featured speakers at South by Southwest this year, and I was there for a handful of days, and so I got to hear your talk, and we got to say hello, yeah. which is nice to bring, to bring a little context to this conversation. You're a busy person. You've released a book called Getting Along, How to Work with Anyone, Even Difficult People. And I want to talk about the, the book a lot. But first, I want to talk about something you said that I, I just wanted to jump up and down in the audience and hoot and holler when you <laughs> said it. Um, and is that, that was when you were talking about soft skills. And the the importance of them. And, and and I really related to this because, I mean, as you know, I'm, I'm a recent Harvard Business School alum, and but I'm an artist. And so mm -hmm. I, it, for me, as a, as a conductor, uh, it, you can have all of the knowledge, all of the quote unquote hard skills, but I just don't get the job done without the soft skills, right? Because it requires empowering a lot of diverse people. Mm -hmm. And so I've been doing a lot of thinking about this. I've been doing some speaking on it and it, because it just drove me bananas at HBS whenever, you know, someone would say, oh, that's a soft skill as, as sort of a, <laughs> it's a nice option <laughs> right, or something right, like right. this. Right. Um, if you want to <laughs> level up, you could do that. But right. right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Right. So just to, you know, just use to use more business school jargon, right? Yep. Yeah, exactly, right. The, yes, there's enough of that, and, and so I've started referring to them as human skills, right? To mm. try to sort of try and get soft skill, the soft part of it, just because it's the way we relate to that word is can be mushy 
or even sometimes it's got a certain connotation. But I wrote something down at South by when you were talking about soft skills and you said, this is not the icing, this is the cake. Can you just take us through this and how you come to that thesis? Yeah, and I mean, I'm gonna turn it on you a little bit because I think the, I think about the kind of work you do as a conductor and you could have, you could have incredibly technical skills as a conductor, right? Like deeply understand the music, deeply understand each of the instruments, like all of that. You could have the most talented musicians mm-hmm. and whether or not that performance touches people, sounds good, all yeah. of that does not depend on those things. It depends on how that group comes together and how you as their leader help them come together. Right. So like, and I think about, I mean, I remember sitting as a management consultant in this huge meeting where this big important company that people would know the name of that I can't say was talking about strategy right and they were they had and they were it was they had like some of the best strategists in the room figuring out how to move this organization forward and I remember walking out and going it's not going to work it doesn't matter that they have the technical skills they don't like each other Mm. They, they like there are people in the corner rolling their eyes at other people like it's not it's just not going to work. And I think that, and and it's funny, I'm sure there are people who listening, and I'm sure there's even colleagues of mine at HBR who, well, maybe not colleagues of mine at HBR, but there are probably people at HBS who would say, no, it's about the technical ability. And I agree, that's really important, those hard skills, strategy, yeah. operations, supply chain, you know, analysis, data analysis, like all of that is really critical Ultimately, the way we get anything done is through human interaction. And so the idea that this is soft, that this is like somehow like extra or like just, you know, nice to have, I think is just so not just like wrong, but negligent about how Mm. how work actually gets gets done and i think by implying that the skills are soft it implies that they're dispensable or not critical and i think we yeah. do such a disservice to people employees leaders by implying that because then when things don't go right <laughs> like when things do fail they're like well why did that fail it's like well, we're missing like one of the key ingredients i mean i i am curious i don't know much about conducting actually i'm so curious about it but i'm I can't imagine, like, is is what I said earlier true for you, that it's ultimately about your relationships and how you bring people together? Yeah, 100%. I, I often make the point that at the end of a performance, I'm the only one that hasn't made a sound, right? Mm. I, I, I've not, mm. I mean, I've made probably made some grunting sounds or something at some butt <laughs> or breathing. Um, but, breathing, right. But, you know, I've Thank never you. contributed to the soundscape, right that that's happening in a performance and so that really is it in a nutshell is that there are a lot of people they are from multiple generations and they you know all come from different schools of thought they you know i mean even just the technique of playing various instruments requires different physical things and these are all people with lives too right and so it, it really comes down to it. And I think I, I love, 
I love being a performer and being a live performer. I think it's a, an incredibly special thing because um, it you're just bringing all of these things together. And, um, you know, we had an episode recently with Seth Godin, and he really made an interesting point about, you know, a conductor's, you conduct something, right? That you, you're a conduit for something, right? That, and so for me, it's totally true that the effectiveness of what happens in the performance is completely based on my ability to empower something greater than the sum of the parts, right? And, and something beyond just playing the right notes. Because that's, yeah. we've, I mean, we've all experienced performances like that, I'm sure, right? And they're, it might be virtuosic, but it's, it, it doesn't have the heart part mm-hmm. of it. Mm-hmm. So I, yeah. I think that's why I relate so strongly to this and why I wanted to talk with you about it because this is so critical to how we get work done as people right? Mm-hmm. And the mm-hmm. skills are how it gets done. But this sort of brings us back to the why. I, I want to pause for a second because I, you just made it like it's such an important leadership metaphor, right? Which is like you are the only one who never makes a sound. Like mm. if only leaders followed that advice, right? Like right. you don't have to make sound to right. be a leader. And right. I think that's uh, yeah. Anyway, it, it, let's continue with the why, because I, th- I do think that's also really, really important. I'm curious to sort of move towards the why part for you of doing this work. And mm-hmm. you've spent a lot of time of your a lot of your life dedicated to understanding dynamics in relationships and how to navigate, you know, different scenarios, you know, person to person and all of these things. So I would love to know a little bit about what, like, really what got your brain going in the way that Mm -hmm. you thought, I have to do this. And this has to be a major commitment in my life. (laughs) Yeah, it's so I have several answers to that question. Um, and, and sometimes, you know, sometimes I tell this, the story of like early in my career when I didn't confront a client as a consultant and and sort of went behind her back about a few things and got caught and then realized the value of being direct. I also sometimes refer to like being the child of divorced parents and just being interested in conflict and when relationships work and when they fall apart. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I mean, which I think definitely played a role. But the reality is that when I really connect to what what drives me, why I why I continue to research and write about this area, it's that I feel like our culture is really messed up mm-hmm. <laughs> in terms of how we think about conflict. Like I'll I'll get asked often to speak about conflict. Like they'll be like, We loved your books, we want you to come speak. Could you not use the word conflict? <laughs> 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 it is or like let's come up with a title that doesn't talk about I was like what like no like and I think we've had this idea for a very long and and maybe as long as humans have been alive I don't know but that conflict somehow is not part of love or caring or kindness mm. and I just feel like that is so wrong like the people I love the most are the people I fight with the most and it's mm. not 
And the expectation that things are going to be smooth and easy and fun all the time, I just think is not accurate and not realistic. And and right. the idea that, you know, I mean, you if you talk to like celebrities about their their um, relationships, right? Like I love they're like, my spouse makes me a much better human, you know, and I'm like, really? My spouse brings out the worst in me. I'm a I'm a child like around them. You know, like it's just I really want to correct this notion that good relationships where mm. we feel safe and secure are somehow conflict free. And yeah. and really what what the skill we the, rather than teaching people how to like smooth things out, which granted is a useful skill, but rather than teaching us because instinctively we do that as humans because we're hardwired for likability and harmony. So we're going to do that. But what we really – the skills that people don't have are how do I fight with someone I love or care about or am invested in and get through that and still mm -hmm. keep our relationship intact. And yeah. that's that's the sort of misconcept the, – the misunderstanding or misconception that I'm really trying to correct with my work. Mm. Mm. That's really interesting. I, a recent conversation I had for the podcast was with my brother. He and I are very opposite sides of the coin, you know, specifically like politically. And I thought it would be interesting to have a conversation with him about that because we've always had this great mutual respect for each other, right? And we're very close, even though these really, these differences that many people would find impossible to overcome. In, in, in having a relationship. And mm -hmm. he made a good point about, you know, we have to uncollapse these ideas of debate and quarrel. Yes. But societally, mm -hmm. we've been pushed into this thing where those things are inextricably linked. And so we're almost required to dislike someone with whom we might not agree. Oh, it's just so, it's heartbreaking, to be honest, that mm -hmm. we don't allow people to engage in debate and dissent and disagreement. Yeah. And I think we've done, I mean, especially in the U.S., in the right. last many years, the model of disagreement is agree or hate. Right. And, right. and I think that though that dichotomy is like, is just, and now there's there's some disagreements let's be honest where the one side is dehumanizing the other side and i don't that's not what i'm talking about right like right. we're not talking about someone who denies the existence of other people like that's that's different yes um but the idea that someone just doesn't share the same political views or religion or it's just outlook on life that you can't have a a meaningful relationship with them, or even just a meaningful conversation. <laughs> We've, we're missing out on so so much of the richness of human interaction when we mm. do that. We just sort of narrow it to agree or hate. And I and I don't think that's I don't think it's fair to do to others, certainly, and to ourselves. Right. I mean imagine where you would be in your relationship with your brother. And I haven't listened to that episode. I'm curious about it. But like where you would be if you insisted on having a shared worldview. Right. Right. 
Like you're yeah, gonna I, disown your brother because you don't have a shared worldview? I don't know. And that's what's that's a really interesting point. Is I come at it from the from the perspective of that's kind of a fool's errand to to us to assume that in order to get along with someone you have to have a completely shared worldview right if that's the case mm -hmm. we should just stop now i mean because <laughs> there are how many billions of catholics who are never you know always going to be catholics and how many billion muslims who are always going to be muslims so uh, you know for me the starting point has to be completely different and mm -hmm. i mean this is one of the things that drew me to your work uh you know and specifically, just a very, you know, great title for a book, Getting Along. You are in the book most specifically talking about the workplace. Um, I mean, these things spill over, and I, I definitely want to talk about that. Um, mm -hmm. But I would love to hear a little bit about the book and why, obviously, a book is a massive amount of work, right? Mm -hmm. And and. I mean, you're a professional in the publishing field, but st that doesn't mean it's less work. And no, so <laughs> really, what was it? Yeah. What was it for you where you were like, this book has to come out of me. I have to write this this book. I just did a, a panel yesterday about um, launching a book and I, I gave the advice, which was terrible advice. But I said, <laughs> if you want to write a book and launch a book and promote a book, like you have to be prepared to be like racked with crippling self-doubt for three years <laughs> and if you're ready for that go for it but because but right. it is it's a really hard process and and i and i say that coming from a place of privilege which is that i went into the process with an agent already i didn't have to find one i knew which publisher i wanted to go with they were very interested in and in working with me because i already worked with them right it, it's so much about it should be easy and yet it is really hard and what drew me to this topic is that I I just felt like so much of the advice out there about relationships at work was very generic. Like either like here's how you, you know, influence people or here's how you deal with difficult people. But they just really clumped them all together. And I knew because of my work at, at Harvard Business Review, that there was research about specific patterns of behavior and tactics that had been shown by, by through evidence to work in addressing mm. those patterns of behavior, and I felt very compelled to sort of be the conduit for that, for the, that mm. those notions, those ideas, to help people. Because one of the things about working in this area and talking about conflict, writing about it, is that I get some of the most heartbreaking LinkedIn messages. Um, emails through my website of people who are just so really, really struggling at work mm. with someone or with a team. And, and I just, I honestly want, just wanted to help those people and, mm. and give them and, and, it, you know, I would say from the flip side too, my work is entirely based on academics who do primary research. I don't do primary research myself. So I'm taking their findings and translating those into, into practical advice and providing stories and context. And I also knew that so much of that research wasn't getting to the people who needed it. And so that's another sort of goal of mine is in, in all my work I do is trying to bring the research to people who can actually use it. Um, because, you know, oftentimes academics aren't incented or um, like the, the, the way they're meant 
the, the publications that they publish in are only read by other academics. And mm, so yeah. just sort of want to get those ideas out there, but ultimately in the service of helping people feel a lot less stress at work. If you think about it, like the things that keep us up at night at work are, you know, obviously stress or deadlines, but often it's about our interactions with other people. I certainly have been, and I talk about a few of the stories in the book, of like ruminating for days on end about interactions that truthfully didn't even have that many consequences. It just got stuck in my head. And so if we, you know, in in like one phrase, if what I was trying to do with the book, it was like cure some sleepless nights for people Right. who were really stuck on a negative interaction or relationship. Yeah, and what's interesting, and you really kind of brought us right into this beautifully, is why why spend this much time focusing on work relationships, right? Shouldn't you just be able to clock out, close the computer, whatever it is, put your devices away and say, okay, I'm checked out, right? And I think we have this sort of unfortunate sense that we should be able to do that, right? To compartmentalize at a very, very high level and say, I'm not in the office, therefore the office is not in, you know, affecting me, which mm -hmm. uh, really what you, you're bringing to the table and starting with is that's a bunch of baloney. <laughs> it really is. And I bought into that. I mean, I I bought into that for years. I was like, I just show up, do my work, and then I have relationships outside work. Right. And But the reality was I was having relationships with my coworkers, whether I was mm. investing in them or paying attention or acknowledging that, because mm. we interacted all day long. And to your point, I was thinking about them after work. Sometimes it was concern, right? Did my colleague John actually, you know, make it to <laughs> Northern California where he was headed, right? Like it was sometimes small things and sometimes mm -hmm. it was bigger things of why, why did that person dismiss me that way? And, or why don't they think I'm worth investing in, in getting this promotion or like, there, it's just all of this, again, soft interactions, if we go back mm -hmm. to that derogatory word, right? <laughs> that really were playing such a huge role in my psyche and still, right? I, I just think it's it's not accurate to say we can compartmentalize these things. I think a neuroscientist would say like that's, that's just most humans cannot compartmentalize in that way. Yeah, the data doesn't support that, right? At all. Yeah. Um, and, yeah. And, and just and vice versa, right? That what's happening in our personal lives should somehow not impact a work uh, environment. I thought there was something really interesting, an, an anecdote that you share in the book about standing at the base of a hill. It's a piece of research that shows when you're at the bottom of a hill looking up and you have a backpack with weight in it and you estimate how heavy that backpack is, you know, with the with the idea that you're about to face a challenge, right? right? And the um, steepness of the hill, yeah. And the steepness of the hill, right. You, you, you make that judgment um, it, and you actually think it's worse if you're alone. If you have yeah. someone standing next to you who's a friend, in particular someone you have a positive relationship with, you estimate the backpack to be lighter and the hill to be less steep, um, which is just it, – it's just such a clear finding on the cognitive benefit of being alongside people 
who we feel care about us, right? It, it makes us more resilient. It makes us see challenges less um, as less challenging. It mm-hmm. makes it lightens the cognitive load for us yeah. of of anything we have to face. It's such a simple example, but it's so powerful. And right that you know, many hands make light work kind of idea. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Well, and I think emotional support makes everything a little bit easier. Like no one would say, no one would ever say that's not true. Or like, I think if we we're like emotional support makes life easier, everyone would be like, yeah, of course. But then if we said, do you need friends at work? They'd be like, nah, I don't think so. <laughs> it's like, well, but that's emotional support, right? right. Like, like we, of course we want to have friends at work. And, and, and I, th- there's decades of research that shows the value of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet somehow we have this idea you like walk into an office or open a laptop and shed the need for any, you know, emotional, your emotional needs to be met, which is just, it's right. just silly. <laughs> right. And, 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 you know, you mentioned neuroscience. I mean, thinking about that, there's some another important piece in here. And this really, this attaches to everything we've talked about so far, um, is the amygdala hijack. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and in, in interpersonal interaction, um, I, I think we all experience this at some level. Right. So can you tell us what is amygdala hijack? And then the second part of that I'd love to talk about is how what's the avenue out of it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, the, the most people probably know of amygdala hijack as like fight or flight or fight, flight or freeze. Often people know of that. Um, and it's it's the you know, our brains are are designed to sense for threats. It keeps us alive to do that. And when we do sense a threat, whether it's something super minor, like I, you know, not getting my way on a project plan or something really big, like being chased down by a bear, which hopefully few of us have experienced, <laughs> our brain starts preparing to protect ourselves. And that means shutting down, the sort of rational thinking part of our brain and letting the instinctive reactive part of our brain, which is the amygdala, to take over. Um, and it's really, I mean, you know, your heart rate starts to go up. Um, you know, you're, you're um, shutting down essential, uh, non-essential systems. You're essentially getting ready to run, which is super helpful if you're being chased by the bear, far less helpful if you're not getting your way on the project plan. And in that mode, you just don't make good decisions. We go into something that social scientists call premature cognitive commitment, which is like we make snap judgments and we stick to them because they, yes. it seems very true to us, right? right? Like, so let's say you and I start getting, have a debate in a conference room, right? Like the minute I start getting triggered, for lack of a better word, or start going in the amygdala hijack, I'm starting to tell myself stories like, well, Tim's a jerk. Tim's always been a jerk. And I get really stuck on that. Um, And so that's that's the way it plays out in in our in interactions with with our colleagues. The way out of it is often um, one trying to calm your nervous system. So doing things like breathing, drinking a cool glass of water, um, just sort of reminding your body and your nervous system that you are safe. So trying to sort of restore the access to that prefrontal cortex. I mean, you're not Technically, you're not getting cut off from your prefrontal cortex. It's just that your amygdala is taking precedent over it. But you're trying mm. to restore that as a, 
um, that as balance. a way of yeah that balance yeah. exactly and the other piece is to start challenging the stories you are telling yourself so that the Tim is a jerk storyline asking yourself like wait is Tim really a, like has he always been a jerk? like like what could be wrong how could I be wrong here what else might be going on because that that sort of open-mindedness allows you to take in more information and data and process it and make a better decision. It's like, well, you know what? Tim's under a lot of pressure, just like I am. He probably wants to prove he's right just the way I want to prove I'm right. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's see if we can find a path forward. Like, it just makes you a little bit more nimble and open-minded in the way you interact and you negotiate with the, with the other person. I think the other thing yeah. is we have to remember we're much more prone to go into amygdala hijack when we're not t taking care of ourselves, like we're underslept, we haven't eaten, right? We're not just sort of taking care of basic needs. And I mean, I think about this. This happened actually last night. I got an email that asked me to do a lot of things that I didn't want to do, and it was very last <laughs> minute. And it was 5.30. I had had mm. a really long day. I had to pick up my daughter, so I was really stressed out. And I freaked out about this email. And I was like, mm. I called this other person who was also involved in the project. I'm like, can you believe this? And I was like going. And then I could feel myself like because she she was actually being very reasonable. And she's like, I don't know. If she really wants you to do all those things. Maybe just. And I was like, <laughs> I could feel myself sort of like slowly getting out of the amygdala hijack as I was like, wait a second. I'm hungry. I'm tired. Yeah. I'm stressed that I'm going to be late to pick up my daughter. I don't want to have to do all these things in a short time frame. Like. Mm -hmm. Okay, like deep breath and just sort of the self-talk I think can be really helpful too, which is like, is this as important as you think it is? Does this have to be taken care of right away? Like, can you take a walk around the block <laughs> and just yeah. come back back to it later? I, I love that recent real life example. And it reminds me of really when you're setting up some context in the beginning of the book. I, actually, I'll just read a little excerpt if that's okay. Hmm. Um, of course. It's before you can begin to work on the dynamic between you and a difficult colleague, and I dot, 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 you have to understand your own reaction to it, why it's bothering you, why it's painful, why you can't let it go even though you want to. And it doesn't hurt to have a little compassion for yourself. Mm -hmm. And I, w what I thought was really interesting about this principally is it involves this sort of looking inward, right? And and how you also use a term, you know, cleaning up your side of the street, right? And so mm -hmm. when, you, when you're in these relationships, that it is a two-way dynamic relationship, right? And like you're saying, the more of these stories you create around someone, the deeper that hole gets. This whole thing of having to have this balanced view and being willing to take on responsibility Mm -hmm. ourselves yeah i mean and i think taking responsibility not because it's because you have to or that it it's or that you it's it truthfully it's just the only thing we can tr control like mm. i can't i can't make my colleague be less pessimistic i can't make them be more direct and not passive aggressive i can figure out how I'm contributing to the dynamic. I can change the way I interact with them to encourage them to behave differently. I can be compassionate toward them and what they might be going through and what they're struggling with at the same time as I'm compassionate toward myself and acknowledge that this situation is really hard and is ha taking a toll on me. Mm. 
the reason I feel comfortable giving that advice, even though I know it doesn't sit well with everyone, <laughs> is because I do think it's the only thing truly that we have control over is our own thoughts, reactions, feelings. Hey, everybody. It's Tim. My team and I work really hard to make this show meaningful for all of you, and we'd love to hear from you about what you're liking and also what you might want more of. I'm easy to find on Instagram at Moti Myers. That's M-O-T-M-Y-E-R-S. And always happy to hear from you via email. That's Timothy at TimothyMyers.com. Also, if you're enjoying what you're hearing and would be willing to leave a rating and a review or pass on to a friend, that helps a lot. Back to the show. You're really segueing beautifully into one thing that I want to talk about. And let me give a little background on how the book is structured is you have these eight archetypes. Like you mentioned passive aggressive or, you know, a pessimist. Yeah. One of my favorites. <laughs> okay. Well, it's my, I, I related to that one probably the most strongly. And I think it's because it's something that I struggle with. Mm. Um, I'm, I tend to be the optimist. Um, I've even mm. been accused of being a pathological optimist. Um, <laughs> and not not the compliment you were hoping for, right? <laughs> right. You know, and for me, I just come out from the standpoint of, and look, I mean, there's sometimes that I'm down on something or whatever, but that I, but that I come at it with the idea of, well, it doesn't help to, you know, say the sky is falling if we don't know and it, or it doesn't help to kind of only look at the dark side of something and mm -hmm. so i i think that's you know that 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 one really for me hit home mm. um so you make a case for really understanding why where they're coming from and how to see the upside so okay, let's just kind of pull this archetype out and just explode it a little bit. And, and I'd love for sure. you to just take us through, what is this? So I have a, I have a pessimistic colleague. Mm -hmm. What do I do? Yeah. I mean, so all of, with all of the archetypes, I do encourage some understanding of what is the behavior that's truly problematic, right? That's sort of the first step because Someone can sit next to me in meetings all day long and say, well, that's a bad idea. That'll never work, right? And it's annoying. But mm -hmm. if it doesn't have a material effect on the way we do work, the decisions we make, then it's just annoying. So what's the, the, the problematic behavior? And maybe it's that every time they say that's not going to work, it changes the tone of the meeting. People stop speaking up. Um, it, it, it takes us in a different direction. We start mitigating risks instead of seizing opportunities, whatever it is. But really think about what's the behavior that's mm -hmm. causing a problem um and you know it, and d discern between annoyance and and problem so that's that's step number one number two is to think about like what's a rational explanation for this behavior not mm. in a way to excuse it because oftentimes it's not it's not appropriate or it's not excusable and it is causing real problems but to to just sort of give it a little space to breathe and try to appreciate it a little bit more. And oftentimes with with a pessimist, 
you know, they're very rational reasons for them to behave the way they are. And and it might be a sense of anxiety, like they're very concerned about the future. There's someone who thinks about all the things that could go wrong and they can't help but voice that. Mm-hmm. It might be that they have a lack of power or are motivated by a desire for power. There's research that shows that people um, who are negative, overly negative, like pessimists, find a sense of control in their negativity. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes being the, the cynic or the naysayer gives them more power in a group dynamic because people afford that perspective usually more power than they would with someone who says, no, this is all great. Um, and, you know, and then there's lots of reasons to be pessimistic in today's current world, right? Like there's lots yeah. of reasons to believe things aren't going to go well. And so it might even just be a rational reaction to the environment around them. Okay, so then you have a, a sense that there's maybe some rationale behind their behavior. Even if you don't agree with it, that's fine. But that sort of gives you some insight into what what's going on. And then you have to ask yourself a few questions like, are their concerns legitimate, right? It may mm-hmm. be, I mean, we can point to many corporate scandals in which someone who probably got labeled a pessimist was pointing out serious problems that didn't get attended to. So (laughs) all the time, right? I mean, we we don't even have to name the companies. I'm sure everyone's thinking of like five right now. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So, you know, are their concerns legitimate? Like, is Mm -hmm. there is and and, you know, the pathologically optimistic people, like we tend to, there's a lot of, of um, talk about toxic positivity, right? Like yeah, we're just right. so insistent. Like, and if you're not positive and, and focused on the opportunities that you're somehow not, you're not going to either fit in or you're not doing the organization or the team justice. And, you know, we have to listen to those people who point out risk because those, that's important. Those are important things to consider. Um, and then, you know, I think then you move from there of like, okay, so what tactics, no, with all that information, then what tactics do I want to try? And I, I never offer in the book like a four-step process for turning your pessimist into an optimist or neutralize, <laughs> right, neutralizing your pessimist. The miracle elixir, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Instead, you know, I offer this menu of tactics that depending on who you are, who the other person is, the work context, what you've tried before, you can try out and experiment with. So with the pessimist, you know, part of it is actually appreciating their cynicism, right? Appreciating what what upsides it might have. Um, Or you might even give them like a formal role to play. Like, okay, Tim, you're really good at pointing out the risks. Let's, can you do that in each meeting? There will be a set time where we turn to Mm -hmm. you and we say, what are we missing? You are good at that. Let's do that. So then you give, then it, it sort of right sizes their influence on the on the discussion and allows them to channel that and and feel appreciated. Um, mm-hmm. And then I think with the other the other tactic I'll share, and there's more, but in the interest of time, I won't go into all of them. But the is that you want to really watch out for polarizing because I do think, mm-hmm. and I'll be curious actually if you this is what some of you experience as someone who identifies as a an optimist is that. You can be like, no, you're negative, I'm positive. You're pessimistic, I'm optimistic. And then the pessimistic person doesn't feel seen or heard. And so they double right. down, right? Sure. Like they get yep. more and more pessimistic because they're like, no, you're not hearing me. You're like, 
your insistence on being positive is dismissive of my viewpoint. So yes. you want to sort of grant them their premise. You don't have to agree with everything they say, but you can say, I hear you. I can see those risks. Those are valid. And what can we do to mitigate them? Or, mm -hmm. you know, okay, so if you had all the power in the world, what would you do? Like give them a sense of agency so they can actually move into problem-solving mode, not just like risk-pointing-out mode. Yeah. Well, in each of these archetypes, uh, as I mentioned earlier, you give so much great practical information. So I've got this page open right now. And the mm -hmm. first one is reframe cynicism as a gift. Mm -hmm. Right? And I mean, that's just such a – that context shift is everything in yeah. that relationship, right? Yeah. And not that you're going to heed everything because if they're like, won't work, won't work, you're not going to go, okay, great, we won't do it. Like you're not giving in to every negative thought they have. You're just giving space for those thoughts to to play a role that they might play, an important role they might play, which is to point out things that could go wrong. So you can make plans and strategies to make sure those things don't happen. And a lot of times they're right. Something you point out is that oftentimes people will display behavior uh, patterns that illustrate tendencies toward more than one archetype. For example, a, a coworker made some passive aggressive jabs on one day and then the next day they're playing the victim, which is another one mm -hmm. of the, the archetypes. Um, and so what's, how do you approach that? That seems like a messy thing to get into. <laughs> Yeah. Well, and it's it's very discouraging because you're like, what am I dealing with here? Right. Like right. And it's, it's a little the, bit of whack-a-mole, right? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I think the because of the approach I take of, of providing this menu of tactics is that you got to try some things out. Like and if they're, you know, if you if you sort of look through the book and see, OK, this is a political operator who sometimes acts passive aggressively. And then when they get put in a corner, acts like a victim. Okay, like I got to read all three of those chapters. I got to figure out which of these tactics I think might be effective mm -hmm. um, and try it out. I mean, it's really about experimentation and, and try something out, see what works, what doesn't. I mean, human interaction is messy. Like the idea that you would have like a clean resolution <laughs> for, for dealing with these people is so – You instead you just have to try things, see what works, what doesn't, refresh your mm -hmm. approach, try something else, and – you know, all the time, keeping in mind, there's probably good reason that it does. I don't necessarily agree with it, but there's probably a reason that they're behaving the way they are. Let's see if I can communicate to them what what might be a better way for us to interact. And how do you? That that's very valiant, right? <laughs> where I'm good going, word. I'm not good trying word. to be. Yeah. I'm not trying to be pejorative, <laughs> but I where I'm going with this, it can be frustrating to feel like you're the improver in a situation. Yeah. You were the one looking to impact the relationship in a positive way. And, mm -hmm. and how do you how do you handle that because that can really lead to resentment. I'm doing all of the work in this in this relationship with this colleague. That's a, that's also a really dangerous place to go. Yeah. Well, and let's be clear. If you do not care about whether your relationships are improves or not, there's no need for you to be in the adult the adult in the room, right? Like, I mean, it's I hope I make the case that you should care, but if you don't, then like 
yeah, don't put that effort in. That's a lot of effort. <laughs> it's a big yeah. burden to take on to be the improver of the relationship. My guess is if you do care, then it, it's worth it. Yes, sometimes you have to be the more self-aware, emotionally intelligent, committed side of this relationship. But ultimately, if you want it to change, you have no choice but to do that. And you can't force the other person to care or to take steps to improve it themselves. I also think about the relationships I've had it with colleagues that were challenging. And when I retaliated or like just sort of tried to cut them out or just... I never felt good in the end. It felt good in the short term, I'll be honest. When you sure. like have a good retort for your like <laughs> political operator colleague who's trying to take oh, credit and you're like, yeah. you know, you're like, put them in your place. It feels yeah. really good. Yeah. But over the long term, you've now got a, your holes a little deeper to dig out of. So if you want to make, you know, repair that relationship, it's, it's more work. And so, mm -hmm. you know, I'm not telling you, you have to do this work. I don't believe that. But I just don't know what else to what other advice to give, <laughs> truthfully, yeah. other than do the work. If yeah. if you want it to improve, if you have the skills and they don't, which is very likely, then you have then this is this is the one lever I think we have. Well, and therein lies the power. I mean, it's sort of that that trite like question: Do you want to be part of the solution or part of the problem? Mm. And Truth, you know, if you apply that here, like I just feel better about myself at the end of the day when I try to be part of the solution. And and yes, I wish they would step up. Yes, I wish they would do their part. Yes, I wish I didn't have to carry this burden on behalf of us. <laughs> but I'd rather do that than than just end up being the difficult person myself. One last question that I ask um, all the guests on the podcast, and that is, what would the world look like with more listening? I think the 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 real impact that that I see when I especially when I when I listen in my own relationships is that the other person feels heard. What I really mean by that is that so much of our the tension and discord in our relationships is about just trying to be seen and be heard and feel validated. Mm -hmm. And if we actually listened, we don't have to agree. Like, right. I, And I think that's the key part is I think listening is not agreement. Mm -hmm. Listening is listening. It's taking in their perspective. It's processing it. It's reacting to it. Sometimes you listen and then you disagree. Right. But I do think people would just feel – I think our egos would all be a little more soothed. Mm. <laughs> and we might see a lot of better behavior from people if they felt listened to. Beautifully said. Amy, I feel like we could, we're going to have to do a part two at some point because I feel like we yeah. <laughs> just scratched the surface. But thank you for the book and for the work that you're doing and the stand that you're taking for good relationships in the workplace and outside of the workplace. Well, thank you for having me and for the invitation. I just think the the work you're doing around listening and how it plays into your, your job as a conductor is so interesting. So I was really happy to get this invitation. Thank you for listening to Listening on Purpose, hosted by me, Timothy Myers. I hope you're enjoying our deep dive into the world of listening and that you're finding it useful in your life. Please be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. And if you're enjoying the show, please share it with others and leave a rating and review. That really helps. You can visit listeningonpurpose.com for show notes and to subscribe to our email newsletter, which includes special episode highlights, more information about our guests, 
advance notice of some upcoming special events, and other news. You can find out more about me at timothymyers.com and from there connect with me on social media platforms like Instagram, LinkedIn, and Facebook. Listening on Purpose is a production of Extra Musical. Executive producers are Meredith Carter of Maduras Media and yours truly. Creative strategist is Julie Fiore. Listening on Purpose is edited by Brian Baltashevitz for Balto Creative Media. Our original music was composed by DJ Spar and performed by DJ and Kimberly Spar. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you next time for Listening on Purpose. Listening on Purpose.